Hello. How long have you been a New York Times subscriber? Me personally? Oh, God. Yeah. Over 40 years, I guess. So you, when you were living on your own, you know, when you were, well, now you live Oh, yeah, when I first, my first apartments in New York. You always had a subscription to the Times. Well, um, oh, technically, no. I mean, for the first few years, I wasn't getting it delivered. I would buy it every day. Right. But it wasn't until, oh, God, which apartment was I starting to get it delivered, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago. But, you know, I was buying it at the newsstand the first bunch of years. So you're a you're a Times guy. You as opposed I, I to the other time, news I am readers. a Times guy. Yes, I'm I'm the one who was always griping about the sports section. That's and, me. And yes. was your family a Times family? Yeah, I mean my 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 father read a lot of newspapers. Like when he would come home from work, he would always he had a Times with him. He'd always bring the the Post, which back in the day was an afternoon paper which had a very good sports section. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the 60s, I th- he, he also liked reading the old Herald Tribune. Well, I was going to ask if you're, I don't know if you're old enough to remember there being even more paper. When did when did all those pa- Oh, God, I, I remember that distinctly because in yeah. the 60s, I, re- I remember so many of the papers. I even remember, well, I remember, you know, obviously there's the news, the Post, the Times. Mm-hmm. I remember the Daily Mirror, my mm-hmm. grandfather, like the mirror there was uh you know the journal american the world telegram and sun the herald tribune and did, um, did they have certain any noticeable ideological differences between oh, them yeah yeah oh, oh absolutely you you knew which papers were you know uh the daily news was the blue collar sort of you know voice That's what of the my people. grandfather read the daily news yeah that, that, that was the most popular tabloid Right. Uh, shocking though it may be, the Post in those days was the left-wing paper. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, the, now owned the, by Dorothy Schiff, who owned it and published it. You know, until Murdoch came along in 1976, it was the liberal paper. Mm-hmm. Had great, you know, Pete Hamill wrote for it, Jimmy right. Breslin, right. Uh, Murray Kempton, they had great uh, left columnists. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, the other papers were, you know, the Herald Tribune was basically sort of like the Times, but basically the Republican Eastern Establishment paper, okay. the paper of the Rockefellers. And, you know, it, it was the, a real reflection of that old Republican East Coast. Whereas right. the Times would have been like a center left kind of like that. The Times was a very center paper of record. Uh, pro- yeah, probably I mean, it wasn't as left in those days as more of a, you know, if it's in here, this is what happened, folks. It, it you know, it was the serious paper. Right. And so you the, know, you, I, I guess the critical question, what I'm getting at, and I really don't want yeah. to talk politics that much, but I'm going to make right. an exception to this time because these things have been on this issue has been on my mind. As someone who's read the Times for forty years, is there a noticeable difference to you in in their in their in the ideological uh, positions that they take or the? You're talking. You're, we talking the editorial page versus the the news coverage. Uh, well, I guess. I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, their op-ed columnists—they've always had a, a range. They've yeah. always definitely made a point of having like one or two conservatives, you know, for years. You know, William Sapphire, yeah. uh, David Brooks has been the one for the last many years, right. um, and even even the the ones on the left tended to be the, for, far more of the uh, establishment centrist side of right. life. You know, Thomas Friedman is is. You know, yeah, he's like above a, that ilk. Yeah, I yeah. mean, the the Times always their columnists always want things to balance. Right. You know, they they always want to find. You know, but on the other hand, and they they always want to find that middle. Um, right. You know, Paul Krugman and Charles Blow, their current guys, they're certainly more of the left. Michelle Michelle Goldberg is so, but 
they have like three or four conservatives and four liberals. Yeah. And uh, but I let's put it this way: I definitely recall their editorial side has definitely gotten more left mm-hmm. over the decades. Yeah. In the sixties, the sixties, I it was they were not against Vietnam for years. Yeah. It was only as the country started to move in the late 60s that they they it, it, they moved at a very glacial pace mm-hmm. on on those kinds of issues. It, it it has moved certainly more liberal in the last decades. No question. Right. So you'll as a as a dedicated Times reader, you'll know why I'm asking this question because this week yeah. Barry Weiss, who is uh I was when this happened, I was thinking of her as a center right politically center-right person, although like on Wikipedia, she's described as center-left. Uh, yeah, that's why definitely I think more common. Yeah. She's, she's, she's a, she, I guess, thought of herself or thinks of herself as more to the left of center, but has this sort of critique of, of the left and what she sees as their silencing of certain types of speech. And she always had that even when she came. And she came from the Wall Street Journal, uh, right. Along with Brett Stevens, who's another columnist there, and is also a conservative and a cl- you know a yes. climate, he's get people know him because he's supposedly a climate skeptic. Um, anyway, she she quit this week and uh, sent a long letter, which was made public to uh, Sol- whichever Sulzberger is in charge now. As that's the name of the family, right? Sulzberger. Yes, Sulzberger. Yeah. Yes. And uh, about um, about the sort of culture of the newspaper. She made claims about being bullied uh, by her coworkers, and that the editorial mission of the paper had, had sort of be, had come to follow a predetermined narrative. And that if you didn't follow that narrative uh, and you wanted to write about a controversial subject, they would either uh, sort of edit you out of into oblivion. Uh, it sort of denude everything you're saying to make it politically correct or just not let you do it at all. And this is all is happening with uh, there's a lot of other stuff going on now. There was a letter in Harper's magazine by a bunch of uh, sort of public intellectuals uh, denouncing this sort of can't what's what we're calling now cancel culture. And I've spent at Steven Pinker, uh, who's a well-known public intellectual from uh, Harvard. They tried to uh, there was a letter put together to try to get him kicked out of some linguistic society because of his. He has certain positions, um, especially around, I guess, sort of race, uh, issues of race and policing and things like that, that they're not orthodox to the left, the far left. Right. Yeah. If you don't, if the problem seems to be if you don't toe that orthodox line, if you stray one iota, you know, you're in big trouble. You know, I've been see that's you know I've been thinking about it a lot, trying to get my head around what it what is actually happening, and I mean when you say you're in big trouble, like what does that mean? I mean because well, like there's... for instance, I think what 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 Weiss was talking about, you know, a few weeks ago there was a very controversial op-ed written by uh, the Arkansas Senator Cotton, Tom Cotton, and basically he's a very right-wing Trump guy, and I think he was essentially advocating that. Use the military yes. to go into the cities to quell these riots, put them down, and you know, just you know, extreme, harsh, punitive, you know, to to my way of thinking, a ridiculous thing to say. Right. But the, the the fallout was that the editorial page editor James had to quit yeah. because he was basically ridiculed. Why did you run this? How could you possibly run this? And he had to resign. And I think that's what Weiss is really is probably the instigating factor. She here mentions the last straw for her. And, and Bennett, Bennett, I believe, admitted to a bunch of things that di- did not put him in a good light. For instance, he says he never he did not read the editorial before it was it was um, printed. Um, well, there's a, well, well, I don't know. Is that is, but is that unusual practice? Does he read every well, I think if everything you, that's printed every day. No, I mean, but or, I think if you've got a sitting, not. if you have a sitting United States senator advocating that the United States military be used against its citizens, 
I think that that should be read by pretty much everybody at the newspaper. Well, I, I do too. But, but again, he is a United States senator, um, and I think there's nothing wrong with hearing him advocate something like this. Let's yeah. put it out there so we could then taunt and ridicule him. I mean, the the idea that we have to be protected from ridiculous opinions is frightening to me. Yeah. I mean, I think we can make, we, you know, it, it's not like the internet. It's not like where, where, you know, unsuspecting people are being assaulted with posts by people and they go, well, I don't know. I read it on the internet. It must, you know, must be true. I mean, this is, the, it, this is the New York times. It is a different audience. I think they can, you know, count on their audience to sift through this stuff and and come up to yeah. with their own opinions. I mean, and the idea, I think Bennett uh, wrote said something. Like, well, we didn't edit it properly, which to me is a very lame. What does that mean? Yeah, this is what Cotton wrote. This is what he believes. Lay it out there for everybody, and then go at it. Yeah, I mean, I th- and I think I, that's what Weiss is talking about. I think there's a see. I, I the Cotton one is a little challenging for me. I mean, I think we would all agree, right? That that if we're going to have this discussion about free speech and a, a sort of marketplace of ideas, that there's um, a spectrum on which these things uh, exist. So uh, yeah. if I'm the editor of the New York times and someone says, and uh, Tom Cotton says to me, uh, you know, I'd like to write, um, I'd like to write an editorial for you about like why I think that, um, that, um, you know, uh, Medicare for all is a terrible idea and the government shouldn't be involved in any way in mm-hmm. um, yeah. in healthcare. And I, to me, I would say to that, that that that's that would be to, on the sort of very to totally acceptable side of the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. But you move sure. down that spectrum. You're moving pretty far down that spectrum, I think, when you talk about the again, the using the United States military against its own citizens. And on yeah. top of that. Uh, I do. I mean, I do think it's very easy for people like you and me to sort of not be feel threatened by these things. But the fact is that the that in the history, the history of this country, yeah. the United States military and and police have been used to. Well, that's the whole violently, point. It's what's the Black Lives Matter. That's what they're trying to tell us. Yes. That, yes. We, I think that's we, true. We, we don't we don't react the same. And it is true. Yes, it is true. But to me for a, a, a United States senator to write and, and publish to what seemed to me a ridiculous set of opinions, I mean, it, it, it perfectly illustrates what's going on in this country and who these people in Washington are and who yeah. the Republican Party is and who the Trump people are. I mean, right. I, I don't, there it is, in black and white. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying that that there is this spectrum and that this one is creeping down the line towards, you know, the next step after this one. I mean, maybe if you, if you force me to give you an answer on Tom Cotton, I'd say it was okay. I don't know. I'm I'm not saying that now, but, but you know, like the next step down the line from that and the step after that and the step after that get to be pretty disturbing. And well, I mean, I, I mean, we're almost veering into the classic, you know, you're a book publisher. Would you publish Mein Kampf? Is that kind a classic a question? I've never, I've never. Heard yeah, that yeah, yeah, well, it is. It's always been used as, you know, because it actually was a bestseller back in the in, in the 30s. But the point is, you know, outside of Germany, is it a good idea to this is Adolf Hitler's. This is him. This is his work, his mind in, in action. Yeah. Should you not publish it? I mean, he was already you know, he was already Adolf Hitler by the time I think English-speaking editions were, were out in the world. So, you know, he was already Hitler. Right. I mean, it's an interesting question. Yeah. Well, I mean, with, with our First Amendment, our free speech background as a country, you say publish. But yeah, that's another thing let, about let, this. You know, it's the old it's the old ACLU idea of you know where um, there was a 
years ago, there was a famous uh, case in Skokie, Illinois, about uh, there was a, a neo-Nazi protest march through this town of Skokie, which I believe is sort of outside of Chicago, and apparently it was very heavily populated by uh, Holocaust survivors. Oh, okay. And there was a huge uproar about this, and the ACLU took the case to pr- pr- protect the right of the neo-Nazis to march in Skokie. Yeah. Because it's the, you know, it, it, you know it's the age-old thing. You know, you can't deny, you, you, can, you could be horrified by what they stand for, but you can't prevent them from peacefully no, but, demonstrating. But to me, that's it, not what we're talking about here. And one thing that really does bother me is when people talk about free speech in this context, which as far as I know, Barry Weiss, uh, James Bennett, uh, Tom Cotton, none of these people are in prison. You know, they, they have the, right, the right, right to free speech has not been in question. The question is, what are the consequences of that speech? And I think, you know, and people on the on the far left, there, there's a there are people who will tell you that cancel culture is not does not exist in reality. It's made up, and um, and that this is just a bunch of elites complaining that people are yelling at them on Twitter, which is another I opinion think. I have a lot of sympathy for because, yeah. you know, so much has changed, especially about journalism. I'm assuming that. Barry Weiss or whoever uh, whoever the the columnists are at the New York Times now, you know, growing up as 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 young uh, writers or journalists uh, with where the New York you know a job as an op ed columnist of the New York Times is like about as good as it gets, as about as important oh, yeah. it as was, it gets. It was it was the ultimate. Uh... Of journalism, right, Absolutely. and there there was no, I doubt, in any of their minds, the idea that when they arrived at that peak of you know that peak of culture or whatever that this this incredibly important position that they would be screamed at all the time. I mean, they they probably thought they would sort of be that wall that existed between the sort of masses and themselves would be there, and you know maybe they'd get some letters that they could open or not open or emails even. But not that they would be, you know, told every day on Twitter how terrible they are and how terrible their yeah, opinions no, no. are. Well, well that, that's the world we live in. Yeah, that's true. But you know, that's got nothing to do with most free speech. People don't read it. Don't read the physical paper. They're, re- they're reading it online. The reach is so much farther now. Yeah, that, I just uh, like I think that there, there is an illiberal part, uh, an illiberal um part of the left wing in this country. When I say illiberal, I mean um, a, a part of the right left wing that is interested in sort of stifling discussion on certain points. They, they don't want to open discussion yeah, yeah. on certain things. Um, and that that may there probably are people who have been canceled in scare quotes um, unfairly. Um, I don't think well, Barry Weiss didn't get canceled. Barry Weiss quit. Um, but right. I think a lot of the people we hear about are really powerful, privileged people who just don't like getting yelled at. And to me, that has nothing to do with free speech. And I don't know, you know, I can understand why you wouldn't want it, want to li- live like that. You know, I mean, I, it makes sense. But on the other hand, you know, it's the world we live in now and people have the right to if you have a Twitter account to. You know, and Barry Weiss was, yeah, go ahead. Again, I think we live in such toxic times. This is unprecedented. Everything is so heightened. Everything is so sensitive. We've never been, I really, I can't imagine a country more divided than this, even going into the Civil War in 1859, let's say. I'd be stunned if if the country was in worse shape then than it is now, in, in terms of, you know, absolute no agreement on anything and you you know you're not merely wrong you're horrible and you're evil for thinking that you know and um so i think unfortunately this colors everything about all these issues because everything is heightened and everything is just has maybe more in you know your words the way you phrase something there's a sensitivity now that you can't possibly 
measure up to. I guess. I don't know. It, you know, it's, it's tough. Um, it's tough. I, I... Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it is. I mean, you know, it's these stories we hear about, you know, college campuses now, you know, you know, people who go to uh, make, you know, to speak at campuses, a lot of them don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, because, I haven't known. You know, I mean, being an old man back on a college campus, you know, an RPI is a, a certain type of university, but I haven't really noticed that yeah. myself. Well, so good. I, I hope it's not happening. But, you know, there have been a lot of comedians who don't, you know, used to love playing college audiences. That was their bread and butter. Now they're they're nervous about it. They're afraid to or they don't want to. Well, maybe your comedy's not that good. or. Well, well, in many cases it isn't, but. I mean, I, I watched, um, you remember when Jimmy Kimmel, this was now, I mean, it feels like it was like two months, six months ago, but it was probably like last week. Uh, he did a skit in blackface. Oh uh, yeah. I, yeah. And yeah. that was a thing for a couple of days. Um, and I, because of it, I went back and watched, he did, I think he did it on the man show, which was sort of his star turn uh, yeah. where he became known. Your favorite show. Yeah. It's so bad. Just terrible, <laughs> and not funny. I not one laugh in the whole thing. Right. Awful. Right. And these guys and Adam Carolla, who is also like now sort of in the Joe Rogan sphere of podcaster, like these like weird pseudo political. They're sort of not political people, but they've been, you know, they're sort of, and they're activated in a certain way, and they have a, a huge reach. So they're having politicians on and and they're very anti-woke uh, basically the only thing liberal really about them is that they they want to smoke weed that that's essentially oh. they want every doll drugs legalized well, it, sounds, they, they, it sounds like they're just libertarian types. they're libertarians really. yeah essentially yeah. yeah and uh but just to watch that show and to think that those guys that got like people have just thrown money at them ever since to do television is crazy and of course jimmy kimmel now is is like you know anti-trump very political uh yeah and yeah. it looks like a jackass like when you sort of show the two th things against each well, other well no no one ever looks good when they show you in blackface no. so it 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 not the, not only it doesn't age well but it it, it it's never good the first time i mean <laughs> you go back old hollywood movies you 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 watch and you cringe. Yeah. It's you know, and and there are more yeah. more very famous people than you would imagine. Oh, Holiday Inn. Face. There's a scene yeah. in Holiday Inn with uh, uh, Der Bingle, Bing Crosby, yeah. where he does like at the conceit of Holiday Inn is that that it's he opens this. He's like a performer on Broadway or whatever, wherever, and he opens a an inn in Connecticut, and it's only open on holidays. And they do like a certain skit for each, you know, like a Christmas one and the Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, one. he does. A, and he, he does, does a, a President's show, Day, a Valentine's one. Day show. Yeah, yeah, and, and a, a President's Day one about Lincoln, and he performs in blackface. It's really, I know, it's and, tough and, to and look Bing at. Crosby, who who was renowned in the music industry for being incredible with praise and generosity towards you know black artists and and singing with. Mm -hmm black band leaders and i mean you know he and yet you know judy garland did it fred astaire did it you know it's it's you know uh, yeah. it, it wasn't just al jolson but no. you know um that's that, that that's just it i mean that's that's the whole it almost leads into the whole discussion about statues and you know besides the confederate statues well what do you do I mean, I you think know, that one's the easier. Washington that one's Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, you know, things like that. Yeah, that one's a little easier for me. I don't know. I mean, um, I think it's reasonably it's reasonably there's a reasonable chance that you can sort of work that out. And there, I think so. I, I mean, I think you you need to make there's a, there is a huge difference between the founding fathers and the traitors of the confederacy right you know, but also it, this I, idea I think, that, I think we could safely make that distinction yeah but i think you also have to i mean to me a statue is not a history lesson a statue is a way of right. venerating a person 
And, and if the person doesn't deserve to be, you know, the idea that somehow we're like erasing our history, if we take down a statue of Christopher Columbus or, or even, even a president, you know, somebody who had a, a complicated, a more complicated history with these things. I don't know. It doesn't bother me. Though. Right. I'm right. Well, well there, there is that thought about putting up, leaving the statues and putting up plaques, you know, with explanations with, with, okay. But on the other hand, folks, did you know that? Robert E. Lee, bum, but you know, and you yeah. list, you know, you make it educational. Yeah. Would that work? This is not doing wonders for my blood pressure. I don't, I don't know no, why I, it's, I, it's, I, it's gotten its hooks in me this week, but I've just been thinking about it a lot and trying to come to the right yeah. conclusion. But I think one of the problems is that in this sort of age we live in, you are exposed to constantly exposed to the sort of the entire a spectrum of possibilities at all times of possibilities yeah. of opinions of, of ideologies, but it's sort of all made to fit into a very binary uh, a- approach, you know, because we have this like obsession with right. being there, left there, there or no right or conservative. Or, no gra- you're right. Exactly. And there's, that's the tension. It feels like one of the tensions. It's good it or it's like evil. Yeah. yeah. So, Anyway, and but plus, I, we're, we're assaulted by bad news every day. Yeah. Horrifying news. Yeah. Yes. Your blood pressure has... It's not... My dad's... has is nowhere to go but up. 132 over 67. So, it's not too That's bad. That's dad? No. Well, all right. Not bad at all. Let's get to 120 over 80. And I bought a tooth for a tooth, both for me, and I'll set you free. And it seems nobody's interested in learning but the teacher. Segregation, determination, demonstration, integration, aggravation, humiliation, obligation to our nation. That's what the world is today. Okay, so we're going to, I'll do less take less time in this little section here we don't need a garden of eden update uh, we have an email address we've never gotten an email at it but anyway it's 120 over 80 the number 120 over 80 spelled out at gmail.com uh, the idea of the podcast is we want to talk about things that bring our blood pressure down that make us happy uh, usually it has to do with sports or movies or some music some sort of media um, and so doug who's on the other end of the line and myself we each pick one every week and uh and we watch each other's and the ones we chosen and then talk about it um so uh if you want to send us an email you can let us know how you get your uh, blood pressure to 120 over 80 um we will pass on the unless there's anything you know that really needs to be said about garden of eden no, no. Uh, everything is copacetic. Business as usual at Garden of Eden. Okay, yeah. so uh, we're here to uh, to get your blood pressure down. Normally, I would tell you that you should not watch the news, uh, but we just gave you some of the news, so we're sort of going against our own. Oops. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so that's the show, and tonight we're talking um, – movies music in doug's case and sports we're back to sports we'll start with doug's choice which is the 1964's a hard day's night starring the beatles and my choice is vermont's first round upset the university of vermont's first round upset of syracuse in the 2005 ncaa tournament doug on the other end of the line is my friend uh formerly of classic sports college sports television the nhl network he lives in um Chelsea in Manhattan on 16th Street. I live in Potsdam, New York, on the other end of the state, about half an hour from the Canadian border. And that's all you need to know, really. First up, A Hard Day's Night. Now, in introducing the Beatles again, may I point out that they'll be on our show, as I told our audience, for the next two Sundays. Next Sunday from Deauville Hotel in the Miami Beach show, starring Hollywood's exciting Mitzi Gaynor. So, ladies and gentlemen, once again... Okay, so for Doug, this is we've been heavy on the music the last couple of episodes. Yeah, well, it, 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 they all sort of lend lead to one another, right. and uh, and plus, 
you know, the idea, it, it, it's interesting how this has evolved. This has sort of surprised me. But, you know, what makes me happy? What brings yeah. a smile to my face? What makes me feel better? And I have found, as these months have gone on, that, you know, something like a hard day's night, these things work for me. And right. I think so, they work for a lot of people. Yeah. If this movie doesn't make you smile, I don't know what will. I definitely smiled. So this is from 1964. It's sort of a musical comedy starring the Beatles, um, which and it sort of is is filmed and released at the kind of the peak of Beatlemania. Is that fair? Yes, it, it is. The, it is almost like a, a, a virtual record of what Beatlemania was. Right. It's just a brilliant look at my God. The, 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 I mean, it's it's fictionalized and it's ho- it's a Hollywood it's British filmmaking, but this looks pretty realistic, like what these guys were going through right. on their day to day. It was uh, directed by Richard Lester, who also directed their second film, Help, uh, as well as a f- couple other movies. Uh, a funny thing happened the, on the way to the forum and Superman. Three, three Musketeers. Yeah, Superman Superman's two yeah. and three. Uh, time Magazine listed it as one of the 100 greatest films of all time. I. I think it definitely made me smile. I mean, it's weird to me and I'm not a Beatles person, so yeah. It's awkward and and the the acting is, you know, not good really. It's it's fun and you get to hear the music. Um, you know, I'm not as into it as you are. Um, well, no, uh, this is an interesting take. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm such a prisoner of this that to to hear, you know, with, that Yeah, they they you know, you're I mean, they deliver their lines like musicians pretending to be actors. Like they're, you know, true, but they are far more charming and witty than you would have expected. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's face it: this is coming after, on the heels of all those Elvis movies, where you right. talk about wooden acting and t- terrible <laughs> plots. This. I mean, there was a reason why a lot of film reviewers and a lot of people were comparing them to, like, this was a Marx Brothers movie. Because there was a very surreal quality to this. It Mm -hmm. obviously doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. And yet the four of them, each demonstrating their own personality and their own uh, sense of humor, managed to break through. And And the beautiful thing about it was all right, for the kids it was one thing, but they charmed the parents in the audience too. Mm-hmm. They were like, you know, these were the guys I saw in Ed Sullivan and everything, and then all of a sudden, hey, this movie's not bad. I like that these guys are funny. Yeah, they're they're charming as hell. Yeah, and uh, it just just broadened their popularity even more. It just took them even to a bigger level than so, after so- Ed Sullivan. Right, so the plot is pretty thin. Um, It seems very biographical in the sense that they're 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 appearing on on a TV show. Yeah, 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 and then they take a train, go out of town, and right, they go to the studio, and then sort of one of the central characters is supposed to be Paul's grandfather, uh, played Ah, by an actor named Wilfred Bramble. Um, Wilfred Brambell. Brambell, sorry, he he he's actually a familiar face to me but he i will tell you well well he he became very famous in britain for he had just started i think right before the filming of this movie in a british tv series called steptoe and son which it's sanford and son yes yes it was in america became so basically he was the red fox of steptoe and son he became very popular in britain they and to me, he's the hidden gem of this movie. Right. Well, we'll get to that. So to me, uh, how he didn't get an Oscar nomination, I still don't understand. They're sort of chasing him around, and he's just doing weird things. And then Ringo disappears. They have to find Ringo. It's just kind of like a—I don't know how to describe the the, the plot of the movie. A really. series of comic vignettes. Yeah, and in between did, there. They're playing songs, uh, rehearsing or playing the songs in the actual show as when it happens. Um, that the other actors, I did not know any of them. Although there's two names who appeared as uh, extras 
um, who were familiar to me. One is Charlotte Rampling. Um, yes. who people will yeah. remember. She's, she's been quite active recently. She, she was in, was she in that movie about the, uh, no, what was she in? What, tell me something Charlotte Rampling's what? been in recently. Well, she, she was did, in something that was a lot of rough. French films. I mean, she was very famous back in the seventies and eighties. Right. Uh, she did uh, something more recent that got quite a bit of, uh, yeah, I, I know the one you mean. Unfortunately, it's like I is this the one where the it's like her husband that their fortieth anniversary or something? Is that her? I think that. Yeah, I think you're right. I yes. can't remember what it's called, but anyway, uh, and also uh, Phil Collins, Genesis drummer Phil. and frontman Phil Collins appears at one point. Yes, he, he was he was in the audience for the, the TV show. Right. So we asked the usual questions here. You kind of answered this. Why this? Um, but. Do you want to say anything more about what it is? Well, about this I, 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 I just think that for a movie musical of, of, of rock and roll, especially, you know, coming off of Elvis movies and the movies they were making in the 50s that had, you know, Pat Boone and people like that in it. It, it just this was just such a breath of fresh air. And it, it really did evoke things like the Marx Brothers and, and you know, gee, that John Lennon is pretty goddamn funny. Uh, George Harrison has a wonderful bit. I love I love that whole thing when he wanders into that office mm-hmm. where they're, they're working oh, right. on a TV show and mm-hmm. they think he's just a kid from Liverpool. Yeah. And that, that, that that's a that's a fantastic scene. That that yeah. guy is great. He's, yeah, he uh, shows him a shirt or something that he thinks is gonna be the next uh, big thing. Uh, you know, and when when Harrison mm-hmm. really is really laying on the whole Liverpoolian accent. He goes, you know, don't overdo that, you know, <laughs> adenoidal glottal stop, chicky baby. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, that, that, that's a wonderful scene. Um, it's just all four of them, their personality comes through and the supporting performances like Norm Rossington, who plays their manager. He was a very well-known British character actor. He's great in this. Uh, yep. Victor Spinetti, who plays the television director. Yes, and a really it, great sweater. It, it, yes, they're very mohair. Uh, right. And he, they, the Beatles really liked him because he was in Help. They, I think he also did a bit in Magical Mystery Tour. So uh, Spinetti is definitely associated with the, with the Beatles. Right. But Bram Bell, to me, is, you know, he's Paulie's grandpa, and he was he's sent away on this trip to, because he's, he's having some problems at home and they want him to have a change of pace. And in my favorite line in the movie, they're, they're, they're in one of their hotel rooms at some point, and, and Bram Bell, who, as they say, is a mixer and an agitator, he's always trying to get something stirred up right. with anybody. And he goes, you know, I'm disgusted with a lot of you. They sent me away for a change of pace, but so far I've been in a train in a room and a car in a room and a room in a room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which he was good. It's just, it, it was great. And the way he, he, he's basically, he's the one who gets Ringo to walk out and Ringo gets in trouble with the police. And that's where right. it sets up the final chase scene. You know, a lot of this movie also, if you think about it, essentially these are the first music videos. Yeah, yeah. So you get the music. Um, a, a hard day is night. I should have known better. I want to be your man. Don't bother me. All my loving. If I fell, can't buy me love. And I love her. I'm happy just to dance with you. Tell me why she loves you. Those are the songs you. Uh... I mean, and, and and actually, it's one of my favorite Beatle albums ever. Because the album itself not only has the soundtrack stuff, but they wrote six or seven more songs that are not in the film that are on the album, which are great. Right. So it, it is one of the top Beatle albums, I think, of all mm-hmm. time. And there's a lot of them running from... And you do get to see good footage, of, which seems to me like it's real, um, of the sort of stereotypical teenage girl and some boys too you know like just apoplectic at at being in the same room with the beatles let me put it to you this way i remember i was a little kid 
my parents took us to see this movie. We were living out in Queens, but they took us into the city, into Manhattan, mm-hmm. to watch this movie at a, I forget which, which theater. I remember distinctly watching the movie in the theater, and girls were screaming throughout the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it, this is all accurate. It, it, I think it, 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 it depicts a very real period in their lives, and, uh, we're, we're, and we're let in on it. Right, which is which is a, a nice guilty pleasure. Uh, usually, we pick out sort of a hidden performance that we enjoyed. Uh, I'm going to go with um, John Junk- Junkin, who plays Shake. Shake, he's yeah. this be their road manager. I think he works. He does a sort of comedy act with the guy you were talking about. Uh, he's like t- there's a running joke about how tall he is. Well, that Paulie's grandfather, Norm Rossington, is like a you know a foot shorter than him. Yeah. Shake is like the, the the go-to guy, and he gets the two of them going at each other. And, you know, you know, it's not my fault that I'm taller than you. It's your problem that you're shorter than me. And he just gets <laughs> them going at each other. Right. And uh, he was good. Yeah, I he's him. very good. Uh, yeah, he I, so you've good. already mentioned a whole bunch of. A normal, yeah, I mean, the only other, the only other quick one I'll mention is the woman who encounters Lennon on the stairs and goes, and she recognizes him, and he goes, no, 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 everyone says that's not me. Oh yeah, you look just like it. Yeah, that that's a wonderful little. It looked almost improvised. I'll bet you it wasn't. But and then finally, you know, she he and she goes, you know, you're right. You you look nothing like him at all. (laughs) <laughs> he walks away. She looks more like him than I do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think she's a fair, she's a fairly well known. Uh, I don't know British actress at yeah, the time. She's not listed here, uh, but um, yeah, she, that was a good scene. Uh, we also like to recommend another other movies uh, that you might like if you like this. Um, I guess you could watch one of their other one of the other Beatles movies, which is what Help. Uh, yeah, is that it? How many other movies did they do? Well, uh, that was well. You can count Yellow Submarine, which was animated. Yeah, which they just provided the music. They didn't even do their own voiceovers. They hired guys with even more extreme Liverpudlian accents than really? they did. Uh, yes, the Beatles themselves were a little confused. They they do make a live appearance at the end of the movie. They introduce a couple of songs. But uh, Magical Mystery Tour, which was done on British TV and later released here on Christmas of 67, uh, is another, the only other uh, uh, story thing they ever did, even though the story on that's a little weird. Everything else you'll see of them in film is basically concert stuff. Right. Uh, This is available uh, on Amazon Prime. It's like a three ninety nine rental, um, if you want to get it. So uh, check it out. Next up, uh, my selection this week: Syracuse and Vermont in the first round of the two thousand five NCAA tournament. Okay, so March 18th, 2005 in Worcester, Massachusetts. It's the first round of the NCAA tournament. And uh, pitting a perennial powerhouse Syracuse against the Catamounts of Vermont, making only their third ever NCAA tournament appearance, um, coached by Tom Brennan, um, who, under whom they'd also made their previous two. Um, both teams had lost their final regular season games, UVM to the Black Bears of Maine 
and Syracuse to UConn and then won their conference tournaments. The Orange started the season ranked sixth in the AP poll, but were 16th in the nation coming into the game. Um, you would not, I think, count this as a vintage Syracuse team. Uh, they were very I good. I certainly wouldn't. No. No. Uh, Hakeem Sorry. Warwick, Jerry McNamara, and not not a lot of big names. Um, but those were the those were the two big names. Those yeah. are the two big ones. Um, uh, McNamara, I think, is an assistant coach at Syracuse now, and Warwick was a great athlete, but never really turned. You know, he was a good college player, but I don't think he did much in the yeah. NBA. UVM, on the other hand, um, by their standards, had some all-timers, including Taylor Coppenrath, T.J. Sorrentine, and Jermaine Mopagila. Um, oh, good. I'm glad you said that. I can never pronounce Mopagila. Mopagila. Yeah. yeah, we'll talk Mopagila. more about okay. him. Well, he's, he's the key to the whole thing here, yes. Yes, you could, you could only – I could only find this basically almost the entire second half on a very – Yeah, that's what, that's what I said. That yeah, it's the not a great yeah. – um, it's not a great quality, considering it's not that old a game. But um, but you can watch basically the entire second half. Um, Coppenrath came in averaging twenty five points and nine rebounds a game. But the the sort of the, I guess the, the hero of the not the hero but the center of the story is Tom Brennan, who was in his nineteenth and that would be his final season, as head coach. He retired <clears throat> on a high after this. Um, at UVM, where he was already much beloved. Um, he's famous for being a, just kind of a fun, funny guy, a great interview. He, for many, many years, had his own. He had a morning radio show on the local radio station in Burlington. Um, my interest in the game is that uh, I'm from Vermont. I'm from a South Burlington, which is the town just next to Burlington, where the University of Vermont is. So growing up a crazy basketball fan and college basketball, especially uh, UVM was the only show in town and they were terrible. Most, I mean, usually Uh, now people who know about UVM now, they're really the dominant program in the America East um, largely because of what Brennan did. And then also the league changed, you know, Boston University and Northeastern left. Hofstra, I think, was in it for a long time. So they a lot of the schools that were in cities that had better recruiting bases than Vermont left for bigger conferences, and UVM really has taken advantage of that. And for the last, I mean, basically since 2005, they've been the dominant program uh, in the league. But before that, they were really bad, usually um, – their big, the big game every year was that Villanova would play them um, because Raleigh Massimino went to Vermont and uh, they would lose. So they would, I remember one year, I think it was my junior year in high school, <clears throat> they had a really good player named Kevin Roberson who tragically I remember died. that name. Yeah, he died yeah. in a car accident not long after he graduated. Huh. Uh, they lost to Villanova by two at home that year. That was about as close as they ever got. What, um, what year are we talking about? 91, something like that. I'm trying to uh, think which Villanova team that was who was on it. Kerry uh, Kittles on that team? No, I don't think so. Uh, he might have been a. Kerry Kittles was at Villanova like and I was at UConn. Yeah. So we're about yeah. the same age, Kerry Kittles and I. So oh, I don't think right. he was on that team. Oh, okay. <clears throat> anyway, um, so uh, they were they were the. What did I say? It was, it was the. Uh, Syracuse was the four seed, uh, obviously a perennial power in college basketball. Vermont was the 13 seed. And the Catamounts, uh, it was a very close game. Um, if you watch the second half, as we both did, I mean, it never really gets. UVM leads most of the way, but never by more than like five points. Yeah, I think, then, I think they got to six at one point, but yeah, it was then – Syracuse hit a three, so yeah, it was three to it was three or four points the right. whole second half. And then Syracuse um, comes back and ties it, so the game went to overtime, where uh, Vermont won a sixty to fifty-seven. And you mentioned Jermaine Mopagila; he was not the biggest name on the team, but he was the star that day. He had twenty oh, points and yes, nine rebounds uh, with, some, with some hellacious shots. Great D some steals. Yes. I mean, he, he just stood out yeah. so, so prominently, my God. I mean, you know, because 
there there is actually a huge shot by uh, Sorrentine at the end, but Mopicile hits the shot before, which I thought was even bigger. A three pointer, yeah, yeah. That that was yeah. to me, you know. But Sorrentine got all the you know yeah. his, well, his you, shot at the end. If you Google the game, the the shot that the game is remembered for is with a one oh seven left in overtime. T.J. Sorrentine, who is like this little point guard from Providence, Rhode Island, kind of a scrappy. Um, he was like a f- great, great floor leader, a really good player for them. Um, he's they're running the shot clock down uh, and he just pulls up from like basically half court and buries a three pointer. And do you get two well, great Gus, things? Gus Johnson's reaction. Yeah, right? Gus. First of all, it's called by Gus Johnson, which is going to make it like even which, ten times yeah. better than it is. And and then you get Tom Brennan with his arms in the air, uh, which is kind of an an iconic um, shot. And that was really sort of that was sort of the shot that that sealed it. Well, the, you know, this is a game that you live for. The, the, you know, the Thursday Friday of the tournament. Yep. This is exactly what you hope for. And when you get it, you savor it. You know, because you know a thirteen-four game. Now let's face it: for this game to be any good, the number four team has to have an off day. And Syracuse was not sharp at no, all. They, were not they had a lot of turnovers. Yeah. Their shooting percentage was terrible. Uh, Warwick and McMacnamara, I thought, were very quiet until the very end. Yeah, they came up with some plays, but you know. If Vermont plays well and Syracuse plays well, Syracuse wins easily. So, uh, you know, but Vermont made, you know, it's not like Vermont, it wasn't like Villanova in 85. It's not like they were perfect. No. You know, they, they had problems too, but they, they played very smart. Coppenrath is a very smart player. He's actually the epitome of one of my all-time weaknesses. I love the great college center. And I don't mean we'll see him at the next level at the NBA. You know, this yeah. is it. This is his career. But for college, big guys who know how to use their bodies, no spacing. You know, Coppenrath made, in a way, maybe the biggest shot of the game, very late in regulation. Remember mm-hmm. the jumper in the lane? Yeah. Yeah, he was... Uh, very, very near... Uh, a native Vermonter, too. Uh, he's from Barnet, which is, I think, of the the Northeast Kingdom, which is like the Northeast sec- part of Vermont. Um, and uh, he was six nine, so not huge. Um, I remember I did a feature well, on just him. Just a solid, fundamental basketball player. You know, yep. you, you kill for guys like this. Yeah, we did a feature on him at, at College Sports Television. Right. Uh, it was me and Dave Weinstein and. Uh, Dave's he was one of the producers and shooters at uh, CSTV and his his sister or brother I think lived in Burlington so and my parents still live there so we both had reason to go and I pitched the Coppenrath story we went to visit his dad in Barnet who I think is like I think he might be in the state senate or something like that uh, but Barnet Coppenrath was a, is? his father I think was a politician oh maybe. father oh yeah oh, okay. Um, it's a, it's a tiny town, you know, uh, 1700 people, uh, it was snowing of course. And we went to interview his dad and then went to practice and <clears throat> interviewed, um, uh, Brennan and Coppenrath and maybe one of his teammates. We went to lunch. It was the full sort of UVM basketball experience. We went to lunch at a place called the rusty scuffer in downtown Burlington, huh. which was, right. which was, uh, Brennan's favorite spot and he bought us lunch um, or paid our bill. We didn't intend for him to buy us lunch, but he saw us there and paid our bill. And uh, that was fun. And uh, I don't know what year that was. I don't think it was that, that, that year, but um, Coppenrath had been coming for a while. He was on people's radar. And you mentioned that he didn't really, he wasn't, I think he played some summer league in the NBA, but he had a long career in, in, uh, in Europe. He played in, um, in uh, Spain and Greece, which is very high level. And now he's a math you know, teacher. Just the, the, a math teacher. Okay. In he's Swanton. just the heady big man that you, you would kill to have. Right. Yeah. You know? He's not, he, he's not fast. He doesn't jump out of the building or anything. He, but he's he, he big, fundamental, you did funda- strong yeah. fundamentals, pivot strong, you know, 
Um, he, like I said, he played many years in Spain and Greece, and he's now a math teacher in Swanton, Vermont, which is way up north. I actually drove through Swanton just the other day. Uh, and he's also the coach of the girls' basketball team. Uh, Sorrentine is uh, an assistant coach at Brown University okay. in Providence, where he was from. And uh, Jermaine Mopagila is a senior software engineer at Home Depot in Atlanta. So, okay. Yeah. Now, do these guys pay pay for any meals when they're up in Vermont? I, I mean, are it. they considered they... heroes to this day? Oh my God, yes. Coppenroth, when I I usually try to go to a game a year, maybe if I'm home at the right time and I can go, I go. I've taken Bryson a couple times, uh, and I always see Coppenroth. Brennan's always there. Uh, and Coppenrath is there a lot too. And I know that they retired his number, I think last season, not, not this last season, the COVID season, but the season before that he and Sorrentine came and they, uh, did, they retired both their numbers. Um, and, uh, you, but just... I, I have a quick question. I do have a quick question for mm-hmm. you. I couldn't tell in the telecast, mm-hmm. but I was Bernie at the game. Oh, I don't think Bernie so. Bernie Sanders. That's not Was a Bernie. There? That's not a Bernie kind of thing. Well, you know, sports. I mean, it's like the, he's no. a sports guy in the sense that, well, yeah, and it's Vermont. It's the biggest athletic. Thing. I would think maybe you know, I, true, he wasn't mayor then, but I would have thought. No, he was probably Maybe. already a senator. Was he already a senator at that time? I, I don't probably uh, just about to be a senator. Yeah, probably. I just... No, I, I, I was I was looking on the telecast to see if you know they they do a quick shot of you know the front row and there's Bernie. It would surprise me if he was. That seems like a little too sort of fun. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah true. Just... Yeah. Of he course. doesn't. He doesn't the do that. Biggest moment kind of in Vermont stuff. sports history. Why would I be there? Yeah, yeah right. Uh, Two thousand seven, he became a senator, so he was still in the. Congress oh, he was a congressman the then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but and I don't think he was there. I don't. I don't. I don't remember him being shown, and it doesn't feel to me like the kind of thing that uh, that he would do. Um, but anyway, they lost um, their next game to uh, Michigan State, and that ended their run. But they which is almost great... inevitable in these situations. Yeah, it's very rare to follow up that first round upset. Right, uh, and then as I said, though, since then, they've really been the dominant program uh, in that league. They go, you know, I think they've made now uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven tournament appearances, and they probably would have made it this year. <clears throat> Excuse me. They had yeah. a very good team. Uh, they go to the NIT a lot too, because now the NIT takes the the regular season champion. Um, if uh, if right. you yeah. like fail to win your uh, conference tournament, um, that I thought they'd won another game, but I guess they haven't. I guess they that's the only game they've won in the tournament. That one year they advanced. Um, You'd be the one who'd know. Yes. They're getting a new arena. Uh, I don't know when, I don't know if COVID maybe has put the kibosh on that, but they, I know they broke ground on it. So they, they, they play in an old place called the Patrick gym, um, which is, well, if if it's, if it's not under construction now, I have a feeling that could really fall by the wayside. Yeah. I I mean, I know they, they had started doing work on it, but I don't know if they got far enough that they couldn't turn back or whatever ended up happening with that. But anyway, um, if you, uh, if you like this, sort of thing well then just go on you google google i mean there's no few better ways to spend 45 minutes to an hour than watching the compilations that are available on youtube of you know great sort of upsets do you have a favorite uh favorite um oh sort of early round or first first two days first four days upset well, uh, maybe you could help my memory on this. We were at College Sports. While we were there, it was the Friday. And there were like, maybe this was it. Because wasn't, after this game that night, wasn't Chris Paul involved in an incredible game? And there was a game, there were like three games in a row that Friday. I thought maybe Vermont was one of them where, 
you were just glued to the TV. You know, it was the perfect epitome of what the NCAA tournament was all about. That well, first Thursday. And so Friday. I should mention that at this time, I was, we were both working at college sports television. I was it, usually that time of year, you know, my hours were just not really, I didn't really go home. I just was there all the time. Uh, I was sitting in the control room in the back row of the control room, likely next to Tyler Hale, <clears throat> excuse me, who would, who would, I would later work for at CBS sports and who did not go to Syracuse, but is from Syracuse and is a huge Syracuse fan. And then behind me in the sort of second control room was Dan Moffat, our guest last, uh, last show, who, uh, who rem- always mentions to me that he that said, was his said, favorite that moment. You're, that's his favorite memory of, cl- of college sports. Yeah. You're, you're watching that game. Yeah. You couldn't get over that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I was, you know, the, I mean, I went to UConn, so they're not my team but to see you know to see well you feel about them the way i feel about st john's basketball i grew up a few blocks from st john's right i mean i went to penn penn is my team but i've been following st john's basketball my entire life they're 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 the neighborhood team just like vermont is your neighborhood team right yeah no they were and i yeah and i still i still follow them and um, I think the game you may be referring to took place the next day. <coughs> Excuse me. West Virginia oh. Wake Forest double overtime. Yes. Oh, it, it was there, but there were weren't there like that whole evening wasn't you know, one game into another was incredible. I think it ended with Wake Forest, but the, there were two games before it which uh. were buzzer beaters or incredible performances. It, it was just the classic first round. Thursday, Friday experience. Because I remember uh, going to uh, my boss, Tim Pernetti, at the time and begging him, like, we just, let's just repeat these, you know, in a block. Just put, you know, know, there there were like six amazing games in those first two days of the tournament. Just, you know, basically put them in a loop. Let's rerun the hell out of them. Just keep keep them on the air. Was that the Kevin Pitsnoggle Wake Forest? Pitsnoggle, yes. 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 He was a huge deal that year, yeah. Yeah, which announcer made such a big deal over Pitsnoggle? He couldn't get over his name. <laughs> he kept know. saying it every breath. I don't remember. Is it Vern Lundquist or someone like that? You know, there's something about Pitsnoggle's name that just, you know, had him enraptured. And that was one of the Final Fours I went to, too. That Final Four that year was in St. Louis. Um, and we did the... We did... I mean, to think about now, our set at College Sports Television at the 2005 Final Four in St. Louis was a, I guess you would call it a barge. It was like on the Mississippi River, and it was just, it was like a flat bottom boat, and there was some office space, I guess, on the boat, I don't even remember, and then like sort of a a deck we just put like three captain's chairs on, you know, or, or not captain's chairs, but yeah, like those, you know, those felt chairs that fold up yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. and did our show. And I guess maybe the arch was in the background or something, but compared to what you would do, we would do later at CBS and places like that. I mean, it was about as low budget as you could get. I remember having to run, run in, in, you know, being at the game, the championship game, and having to run tapes physically in, in my, and I was wearing a suit, of course, because I was trying to be buttoned up, running in my suit and dress shoes from the RCA dome or wherever it was, Edward Jones dome, wherever it was being played all the way back yeah. to, that was the year North Carolina beat uh, Illinois. I think it was Roy oh, Williams' okay. first championship. I think. Yes, it was, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, good times. Uh, yeah, but, you know, if it was really, a lot of fun. I'm glad. I'm glad you. I'm glad you recommended this. It was fun watching that again. Yeah. Uh, next time, um, something a little bit different. Um, instead of each of us choosing uh, something of particular interest to us, uh, I watched. Uh, have you watched Hamilton yet? Not yet. Not, Not yet. yet. Okay. So Hamilton, as everyone probably knows, came out the sort of 
not movie, but the filmed version of the original cast doing the Broadway show. It was released a couple weeks ago on Disney Plus. And, and Doug has always told me how much he loves the 1972 movie musical, also based on a Broadway play, 1776. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, this next episode, we're going to compare 1776, which again was, was a Broadway show that was uh, different from Hamilton and that it was made into a movie, whereas the, the Hamilton you see on Disney Plus is just the show, the Broadway show filmed. Right. But, um, but, but both uh, the original cast, the 1776, right. most of the people are from the original show. Yes, so and I was so they, excited. They share that. I was so excited by the cast of 1770. I'm really looking forward to it be. now. William Daniels plays John Adams. I loved St. Elsewhere. And William's, okay. William oh. Daniels was in St. Elsewhere, a great 1980s sort of hospital drama. You remember St. Right. Elsewhere. If you, and if you recall, there was an episode of St. Elsewhere where he and the woman who played his wife on the show, who was his real-life wife, are shown in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And he goes into a little John Adams from the show. And she breaks up laughing very hard. It was, a, really? it was an inside joke that they put that they kept in the episode. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So he plays John Adams. Ken the White Shadow Howard plays Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> I'm really yes, looking forward did. to that. And his wife is played by Miss Blythe Danner, Martha Jefferson. And of course, Hamilton, which was recently released on uh, Disney Plus, uh, Lin Manuel Miranda as Alexander Hamilton, W. Diggs as in a dual role as the Marquis de Lafayette, Thomas Jefferson, and Leslie Odom Jr. as Aaron Burr. So you're going to watch that, and the next time we're going to talk about these two sort of compare and contrast. The dueling founding fathers of uh, musical theater. All right. Absolutely. We'll talk to you then. Bye.